Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Lord, we recognize that we are a busy and distracted people. God, we've got a million things going on in our minds right now from what we're going to eat after the service to the Bears game to whatever else is going on in our lives right now. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to um, fix our attention or fix our eyes towards you. God, towards your word, what you're speaking to us. Lord, we know that your word is life, that it, it can reveal to us the, uh, the desires of your heart. And, and, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be open and ready to receive your word with faith and give us understanding in our hearts, God. So, Lord, thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you so much for the opportunity to worship you this morning, not only in singing, but also worshiping you in the the hearing and receiving of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 I want to just open this morning uh, in by way of just sharing a brief story from my own life. And I've shared this a number of years ago, but it highlights for us some of the, the themes that we see coming out in the story. And so... Um, when I was, I think, just either out of college or my senior year of college, I went on a missions trip to the Dominican Republic with a number of people. And on this trip, halfway through the trip, we decided to rent four-wheelers and drive up the side of a mountain, okay? So the first thing that, as you hear the story, you should realize is renting four-wheelers, driving up the side of a mountain in a third-world country is not a good idea ever, and so um, as we, we get the four-wheelers, and as we're driving along this dirt road, we come to a river, and so everyone puts on the brakes, and as we're driving, I, I was the second to last from the end, and out of the corner of my eye, I see a four-wheeler going end over end over end behind me, and it just misses me, I and mean, it comes right alongside of me, and behind the four-wheeler, I see a person going end over end over end, just toppling over. And after the dust clears and everything settles down, we jump off the four-wheelers, we run over, and it's the team leader at the time. So we've got, uh, I think, about 20 students, a number of leaders on this trip who paid really quite a bit of money to to go on this missions trip. And we're only halfway through the trip, and here it is, the team leader, which happened to be Dave Prince, who's now the pastor at Living Word Church, sits up from this accident, and his shoulder is in the middle of his chest. And he turned white as a ghost. I've never, you know, that expression, turn white as a ghost. He was literally white as a ghost. I mean, I've never seen anything like it before. And his shoulder's in the middle of his chest. And he's just, he, he can't make heads or tails of what's going on around him. And, and so from there, we had to uh, find a doctor in the Dominican Republic on a Sunday afternoon who was not intoxicated. And so that was impossible. So they went to a number of doctors. They're all drunk. They couldn't take care of him. We had to fly him out of the country back to the States. He's okay now. But all that to say is this. On one level, there's a certain storyline of of our lives that we see just happening around us. There's an accident. Someone gets hurt. What are we going to do now? Well, because of that, I took the the lead of the team for the, the second half of the trip, which was an incredible experience for me because at that time, I had never led really much in, in terms of church activities ever. 
or really participate in any kind of leadership at any level at the church. And so from that accident, I had the opportunity then to lead the team, had a phenomenal time the rest of the trip. And from that, really set the trajectory for the rest of my life to say, probably a, a lot of the reason why I'm here today where I'm at is because of that accident in the Dominican Republic. And that goes to highlight this, that amongst every story that we have of our lives, there's the lower story of what we see happening around us, but there's also an upper story. There's an upper story where there's a perspective from what God sees and what he's orchestrating in all of our lives and across the whole world that we don't always get a glimpse of immediately. But yet God is always in control. God is always able to take whatever is going on and he's, he's able then to bring about his purposes in every and any situation. And so in terms of a bad accident, that set the trajectory for the rest of my life. That was the upper story. The lower story is, oh no, what are we going to do? Can't find any doctors who are sober, okay? So there's the upper story and the lower story. Now, when we come to the story of Joseph, there might not be a clearer picture in all of Scripture that gives us this idea of the upper story and lower story as we see in the life of Joseph. Because we see in the Bible, Joseph saying at a number of different places, hey, there's an upper story here. God has got something going on in this story that, that we need to take notice of and recognize because there is an upper story to what's going on in my life. And so the upper story then begins to interpret the lower story. God's perspective of what's happening and what's going on begins to interpret for us the lower story and helps us to make sense of life. Do you guys get that? The upper story then begins to interpret the lower story of our lives. Now, before we jump into this, I want to just give a few things as background before we open our books and begin reading in Genesis uh, 37. If you remember, we've talked through these, uh, these past few weeks. The fundamental problem that mankind has from Adam and Eve on to Cain, on to uh, Noah, on to the Tower of Babel, and on and on and on. The fundamental problem of humanity is sin. It's a sin problem. And it gets passed down from generation to generation to generation. It's not a problem of education or having enough food or having clothes or having a home or driving the right cars. That is not the fundamental problem of humanity. As important as those things are, education and food and shelter, those things are very important. But in the end, the fundamental problem of humanity is this issue of sin and how do we become reconciled to an infinite and holy and righteous God. That is the fundamental problem that we're going to see presented to us in all of Scripture. How do we become reconciled and made right before God when in our hearts and in the desires of all that we do as humanity, as individuals, every turn of the way we find sin and we find pride and we find deceit and we find anger and we find jealousy and self-righteousness and independence and all these things that we see happening in our lives, what do we do with those? And how do we become reconciled to a God that is holy and righteous and pure? Okay? That's the fundamental problem. All right. Let's talk about this story. So as we jump into the story, and if you want to turn with me over to page 29, 
in your storybooks, or Genesis chapter 37 is where we're going to begin, we're introduced to a, a, a man by the name of Joseph. And as we jump into the story, it kind of fast-forwards some of his life. Here's what we need to know before we begin reading. Joseph was the privileged son who was, in a lot of ways, daddy's favorite. Okay, So there was 12 brothers, and one brother in particular, the dad gave Joseph this beautiful coat. Now, this beautiful coat wasn't just a, well, hey, everyone, got the new, everyone gets the hand-me-downs because there's 12 of us, and we're just going to give Joseph the new one. It, it was much more than that. It was a coat that signified status. It was a coat that would signify special privilege. And so for Joseph to receive a coat, it was much more than just, oh, Joseph got a new coat. It was in a lot of ways saying, hey, look, this one is special. And as we get into the story, we're going to see that where his brothers are all out working and tending the, tending the flocks and taking care of dad's um, resources, Joseph's at home with his dad. He's not the one out in the fields working. He's the one at home taking it easy, being cared for by dad. Okay, So um, I'm going to have Diane come up and give me a hand reading here. We're going to begin reading in, at the top of uh, page 29. I'm sorry, at the beginning of chapter 3, page 29, we're going to read to the top of page 31. And if you're following with us in the Bible, we're looking at Genesis 37, verses 12 through 36. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for twenty shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, He tore his clothes. 
He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Thank you, Diane. We read this story and think, what, how terrible that would have been. Does anyone here have younger brothers? Right? It's probably not that far off at sometimes, right? We've all been there. It, Joseph then was sold into slavery into Egypt. So who sold Joseph into slavery into Egypt? His brothers, right? His brothers sold him into slavery into Egypt. Now I want to just put the map up here to show you where they were. So there's Joseph near Jerusalem being sold now, brought down into Egypt. And if you can imagine this, his brothers sell him into slavery, into Egypt to their cousins. So he's, he's not only his family has betrayed him, but also his, his near relatives as well have betrayed him in a lot of ways. His cousins sell him into slavery. And you can see where there would be, have been this animosity and this anger towards Joseph being the favorite son of, of 12 brothers and being the son of privilege and daddy's favorite and just thinking, man, we hate this guy. Let's just get rid of him, be done with this thing. And so they sell him into slavery. Now, I want to read just a few more uh, paragraphs here at the top of page, um, at the top of page, I'm sorry, 31. We're going to read because it continues on with what happens to Joseph. This is Genesis 39, 1 through 6. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's official, the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Now, I want you, if you have your books, begin to underline the things that God is doing, okay, where it says the Lord. Underline that. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of, the Egyptian, of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. And from the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. And so in this brief description of Joseph's time with Potiphar, we begin to see this refrain of God is with him, that God is prospering, that God's bringing about blessing to Joseph and really to the people that Joseph is connected to. God is somehow making a way. Now, from here, we're going to take a fast-forward run through Joseph's life, okay? So hang with me here as we do a little fast-forward through Joseph's life. And I hope 
as we do this, we just want to encourage everyone, continue to read this story. And if you're able to read ahead from where we are, please do that because it will really help to make sense of the things we're talking about on Sunday mornings. And so I encourage you, the chapters are not long. It's a real, it's an easy, quick read. So I would encourage everyone just to continue to keep reading the story. Okay, so the first part of Joseph's life, this is ages 17 through 30, he's a slave and prisoner. And so here he is, he's sold into slavery in a Potiphar's house. And so as a slave, he's working through and he's being promoted in Joseph's, I mean, in Potiphar's house. Now, it also describes Joseph as being very, uh, very handsome and well-built. So he looks much like me. And um, I'm just kidding. Uh, and so as he's there in his master's house, the, ma- the master's wife begins to come on to Joseph day after day. She begins to say, hey, come to bed with me. Hey, I really think you're great. Why don't you come be with me? And just over and over and over again, right? So it finally comes to a place where Joseph's in the house and she's there and, and she tries to make a pass at him and he takes off running, leaves his coat in the house to which Potiphar, when he comes home, is told by his wife, that Joseph tried to assault me, and I've got his coat to prove it, then Potiphar takes Joseph and throws him into prison. Now, if you can imagine this young, this young guy getting into prison, he's been wrongly charged with sexual assault, okay? So he gets to prison, and they're like, what'd you do? Well, they say I assaulted this lady, but I really didn't do it. And they're like, okay, right, kid. No one here is, no one here is, is guilty. Everyone here is innocent, right? So no one believed Joseph, I'm sure, and he's been wrongly condemned in prison for years for something he didn't do on trumped-up charges that he sexually assaulted somebody. Now, let's read page, on page 32 about what the Lord is doing while Joseph is in prison. Page 32. This is Genesis 39, 20 through 23. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in prison. He was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. And so while Joseph is in prison, the Lord is with Joseph. And Joseph gets the reputation for one who is able to interpret dreams. And so while he's in prison, two of Pharaoh's officials enter into prison because we're not quite sure why, but Pharaoh was displeased with these two guys. And they go to prison as the baker and the the cupbearer for the king, for Pharaoh. And both of them on the same night have this dream. And so Joseph is able then to interpret the dreams, and the dreams come true. And he says, look, as you get out of this prison, please remember me. I've done nothing wrong. I'm here rotten away in prison. And, and please, if you could say something to Pharaoh to get me out of here, that'd be fantastic. Well, they forget about Joseph. And two years passes, and lo and behold, Pharaoh as well, begins to have some really strange and bizarre dreams. Okay, so Pharaoh has some bizarre dreams. It wasn't the burrito he ate before dinner that the night before. And in his dreams, Pharaoh sees these, these really fat cows 
are eaten by these really weak and, and skinny cows. And the same thing with the grain. There's seven uh, head of grain with seven full heads of grain, and these skinny heads devour the, the, the big heads of grain. And so Pharaoh hears that there's someone in prison who's able to interpret dreams. Well, lo and behold, let's call Joseph out of prison. Now, he's 30 years old at this point. He's been either enslaved or in prison for the past 13 years. And he's been in prison for at least two because we know that they forgot about Joseph for two years. So he's been a slave or in prison for 13 years. And now he's called by Pharaoh to come and interpret his dream, right? As we're reading this, you think, man, Joseph, now is your time to shine. Let's make this thing happen. Let's read at the top of page 33 what happens when he's called by Pharaoh. Top of page 33. This is also Genesis 41, verses 15 and 16. The Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said that you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now, this is good news for Joseph because the Pharaoh said, hey, look, you're the man. I heard that you're able to do some incredible things. And now Joseph's probably thinking back about the long 13 years of his life that he's spent enslaved and in prison, thinking, now, now's my chance. I'm, I'm before the highest, the most powerful person in the whole land who just, all he needs to do is say a word and I'm released and I'm set free from prison. I can do my own thing. I can go home or whatever I want to do and I'm out of here. And you'd think the temptation would be to say this, okay, yeah, I can do that. Let me show you what some things that I can do. And really have the opportunity to make a name for himself. But this is what happens. This is Joseph's re- reply, right? I cannot do it. I cannot do it. Can you imagine that? You get the opportunity to shine. You get the opportunity to make a name for yourself, to maybe plead for your innocence, to, to okay, now's your chance, Joseph. And he says, I can't do it. But, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. But God will give Pharaoh the answer that he desires. I cannot, but God will. I cannot, but God will. And it's amazing because in this, we see this picture of after everything that's happened to Joseph, there's an opportunity for him to make a name for himself. He takes what's, what's been, in a sense, given to him. There's, there's been this recognition, this, this fame that's been attributed to Joseph. And he says, look, look, it's not about me. This is not about me at all. This is about the Lord. I'm going to give glory to God. This is only something that God can do. And whether you put me back in prison or put me back into slavery or whatever happens, the recognition goes to God Almighty because he alone is the one who decides what happens, who can interpret the dreams, who can do whatever he wants to do. God is the one who gets all the glory for any interpretation or anything else that happens. And so as the Pharaoh begins to describe to Joseph these dreams, and Joseph begins to, dis- begins to interpret these dreams for Pharaoh, we read this. He says, God has shown, God has decided, God will do, over and over and over again. There's this recognition that God is the one who is in control. 
God is the one who's deciding what's going to happen. God is the one who's calling the shots here. Look, you may be the Pharaoh, you may be the king, but there's another king who has much more power and is the one who calls, really calls all the shots in the land. And it's not you. God is the one who's decided. God is the one who can do. God is the one who's going to bring about all these things to pass. And from there, Joseph gets promoted. And in this section of his life, he becomes, he prospers and he's brought, he's reunited with his family. So from here, what happens is, is Pharaoh promotes Joseph and says, look, there's seven years of, of abundance, then followed by seven years of, of famine. So here's what I want you to do, Joseph. You, we're going to put you in charge and then you do whatever is good on your mind to do. So Joseph begins to harvest all the grain, puts it in the storehouses and begins to make provision for the seven years of abundance. And then after the seven years of abundance, what happens is exactly what God said would happen. There's seven years of famine. And in the seven years of famine, the whole world experiences a great famine. And there's one place in the world that has plenty of food, and it's Egypt. And so where Abraham and his sons are, they begin to realize, really, a couple years into this famine thing, that we're in trouble unless we go to Egypt and get some food. And so um, Abraham, I'm sorry, Jacob begins to send his sons down to Egypt to get some food, where... Joseph then is reunited with his brothers. Now, you can imagine how it's been, at this point, probably about 22 years since Joseph has seen his brothers last. 22 years have passed since that 17-year-old boy was sold into slavery by his brothers. And now here he is being confronted with the same brothers, and now Joseph is the one who's got all the power, has all the food, has all the ability to do whatever he wants to to his brothers. Now, he doesn't reveal himself right away. He has a little bit of fun with them first, okay? Plays around with them a little bit. But all the while, he's, he's, I believe he's testing his brothers to see, has anything changed amongst my brothers since the last time that I saw them? Are they the same people that, that dropped me off? And they've changed, by the grace of God, his brothers are not the same. Now, now Joseph said, hey, look, bring the, young, bring the youngest brother along, and we're going we're gonna to see if what you're saying is true. And his, lo and behold, his, his brothers say, no, 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 I'll, I'll stand in the place of the younger brother now. They're protecting their younger brother instead of selling them out. And there's this beautiful story. And then Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. Finally, the time has come. Joseph says, guess what, guys? Remember that 17-year-old boy that you sold into slavery and you wanted to kill, but instead you sold me to our cousins and they sold me into slavery here and I spent some time in prison? Well, and now I'm the second in command in all the land. I'm that little boy. I'm that one that you sold into slavery. And they are terrified. If you can imagine, they're terrified. Because now Joseph calls the shots. I want to just read a few paragraphs on page 39 about Joseph's response to his terrified brothers. Page 39, or Genesis 45, verses 3 through 8. This is so key for this story. Genesis 45, 3 through 8, or in the middle of page 39. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living 
but his brothers were not able to answer because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. And now here we get the upper story. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. So who sent Joseph into slavery into Egypt? It was God, right? It was God who did this. Now, continuing on. For the next, for two years now, there have been famine in the land. And for the next five, there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, again, the upper story, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all of Egypt. So again, we see there's this upper story taking place that as, as much as it looks like his brothers sold him into slavery, into Egypt, Joseph begins to seeing the upper story, and he begins to interpret what's happening around him. And he says, look, it wasn't you that sold me into slavery. It was actually God Almighty who sent me here to bring about a great deliverance for God's people. That the promise of God that he made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, that your, your offspring will be a blessing to all the earth, that this will come about in one, someday. And the very thread that runs throughout all of Joseph's life is this. God was with him. God was with him. God was with him. That's the thread that runs through all of Joseph's life. This idea, this understanding, this perspective, this upper story, that God was with him every step of the way. And because God was with Joseph, because God was with him, he was able to endure the humiliation, the brokenness, the loss of family, the slavery, the, the false imprisonment, the accusations that would have come against him, the, the, the embarrassment that would come by being accused of sexual assault. I mean, all these things that would have happened to Joseph, he was somehow able to endure this because God was with him. There was a perspective of his life that God was with him every step of the way. It's because God is the prize. God is our great reward. God is the one who sustains and fills and, and, and keeps us in every circumstance of our life. God is our great reward. It's not a full belly. It's not, it's not nice clothes. It's not a bigger home. It's not more cars. It's not a better job. It's not ease and comfort in this life. It's not health. It's not any of these things. God is our great reward. And unless we keep that in perspective in all times, we are going to begin to forget of the upper story of all of life. Because there is an upper story to every story. And Joseph was able to forgive his brothers and move on past this horrific experience in his life. Enslavement and imprisonment is, would have been a horrific experience in his life. He's able to forgive his brothers and move on because he's never lost sight of the upper story. That God is in control. That God is the one who's making all things happen. And as God's people... 
those who have, who have asked Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, who have been reborn by the Spirit of God, God has promised to never leave us or forsake us. God has promised to be with us every step of the way. That those people that he's called his children, he says, I will never forsake them. I will always be with them. No matter what happens in every high and every low, in the good places and the hard places, I am with them. And even with the wrong that Joseph's brothers did to him, even in their sin, even in their, even in their, their, their anger and their jealousy and their betrayal, God was able to bring about a great redemption of God's people. God was able even to use their sin for his purposes and his good. Now, in this story, we encounter something of God. We encounter a God who is sovereign, meaning this, he is all-powerful. God is able to do whatever he purposes to do. There's nothing to stop the plans of God. That in everything, God is all-powerful, sees everything, knows everything, and brings about anything that he desires to do. God is not stopped or hindered by anyone or anything. And so we encounter a God in this story who's sovereign over nature. God is able to bring about abundance and famine. God's able to control even nature itself. But he's also sovereign over our lives. He decides whether there's prison or there's freedom. It wasn't really Pharaoh who released Joseph. It was all in God's perfect timing. But he's also sovereign over our future. He's the provider. He's the preserver. God is sovereign over everything. Over nature, over our lives, over our future. God is in control. And we see that so clearly in this. This sovereign God has promised to be with his people all the time. No matter what. In every circumstance. And so our story. Where does our story fit into this story? this whole thing. God's promise to be with us, it reinterprets all of our life. That no matter what is going on, his upper story, his eternal purpose is always getting getting worked out in our lives. Even in the difficulties. His purposes always prevail. So I want to just take a moment here. This isn't the main point of the story, but I want to take a moment. How can we tell if we have lost sight of the upper story in our lives. I think two things that are key for us to understanding whether or not we've, we remember that God is in control at all times, that there is an upper story to our lives. The first thing is this, do we worry? Do we worry? Are we worried about what's going to happen, about what's going to take place, about what could happen, about what might happen, what if, how come, how does this work? I, 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 what it, and we become... Worry, worry becomes an overriding factor in our lives. We begin to worry about the future. We begin to worry about our kids, our, our grandkids. What, what if? I, I don't understand this. And worry then becomes the override because we lose sight of the upper story. We lose sight that God is in control. So therefore, if God's not in, in control, then who is? Well, then I'm in control. And I need to work some things out. And I need to make sure everything's in order. And then we begin to worry because... We can't possibly take control of everything in our lives. We're not meant to. We can't. God can't. So we begin to worry. The second thing is this. Do we complain? 
do we complain? When we see complaint beginning to, to rise up in our lives, when we see complaining begin to come out of our lips as we're talking to our friends, as we're communicating with one another, it's, well, I can't believe this happened, and you wouldn't believe so-and-so said this, and, and why did this have to happen? And what happens in that moment is we forget that there is a sovereign God ordaining every step of our lives. We begin to forget that God is the one in control, that we're not the one who's calling the shots in our lives, that God is the one who's, who's sovereign over everything. And when we lose sight of God's sovereignty and God's control and God's purposes and God's perspective and God's story being written across all of history, we begin to think, well, then I'm in control. And I don't like what's happening. And I don't know why this has got to take place. And I don't know why I got stuck with this job or with this person or these kids or this house or, or all these. It goes on and on and on. And as complaint rears its ugly head in our lives, it's a sure sign for us that we have lost focus of the upper story of what God is doing in our lives. You can imagine if anybody had, had an opportunity to complain, if anyone had an opportunity to worry about the future, it would have been Joseph, sold into slavery, wrongly convicted of sexual assault, thrown in prison. He's got no, there's no public defenders to work his case out before Pharaoh. There's no family around to visit him in prison or to plead his case. He has none of that. For all he knows, he's in prison for the rest of his life. He's been forgotten about. He's been dismissed. The prison warden is happy to have him there. He's happy to have him as a prisoner. He's not going to make it easy for Joseph to get out of prison. So therefore, Joseph is looking at an entire lifetime in prison. If anyone had the opportunity to lose focus of the upper story, to, to begin to worry, to begin to complain, it would have been him. And we would have all probably agreed, yep, you know what, you've got it. If anyone should be complaining, it's you, buddy. I want to wrap this up for us. The promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, that he says, your offspring will be a blessing to all the world, that all the earth will be blessed through your offspring. It was partially realized in Joseph. Because as we read the provision of, of food in Egypt, it brought all the nations into Egypt, and there was food and provision provided for all the world through Joseph. And so we see part of this fulfillment of God's promise in Joseph. He did, he did provide blessing to all the world that people weren't starving because Joseph was, had the foresight to begin to provide and, and care and make provision for all the world. So we say, wow, this is really coming to pass. But what happens after this story, after the, the, the grain is gone and, and the, the, the seven years of famine are, 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 are ended, shortly after that, Joseph, his wisdom, his plan, his provision for, for Egypt, it's been forgotten. Just a few generations later, it was like it never happened. And so even though this blessing was to the whole world, it was short-lived. It was for a generation or two that they really saw, wow, the, the people of God are providing blessing for the whole world. It was only partially realized. Now remember, we said what our greatest need is at the very beginning. And right through all of Scripture, we see our greatest need is not to have enough bread. Our greatest need is to be reconciled to God as this issue of sin, 
What are we going to do with this problem of sin? How, we, how are we going to be reconciled to an almighty, holy God? That is our greatest need. However, one of Abraham's descendants, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, provided for us and met us in our greatest need. In Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. In Jesus Christ, we have a righteousness that we did not earn. In Jesus Christ, upon that cross, he took all of our sin and all of our guilt and all of our shame upon his body that we would be forgiven completely, our past, our present, and our future. Put upon Jesus Christ that when God looks down upon his people, those who have called upon Jesus Christ, have trusted in him for the forgiveness of their sins, have been reborn by the Spirit of God, as as God looks down upon us, he says, those are my children, Their greatest need has been met by my son. And that through Jesus Christ, the blessing that all the earth would be blessed through the descendant of Abraham has come to pass. It's in Jesus Christ. It's not in Joseph. It's in Jesus. Joseph provided temporary blessing. But it is in Jesus Christ that we have eternal life. Amen? We're going to close. And I hope this has encouraged you to continue to remember that there is always an upper story taking place in all of our life. Whether it is in slavery or in prison or at Pharaoh's side, there is an upper story that is transpiring around us, that is taking place. And we need to remember as God's people to keep our eye upon that, that in Jesus Christ, God has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And that our hope is not in ourselves taking control of our own lives, It's in trusting that God is in control at all times. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are sovereign in all of our lives. Jesus, today we give our trust and our hope to you. Lord, we confess we are not in control of our lives. We can't possibly hope to control everything that happens around us. We can't manipulate people's lives. We can't manipulate our own future. Lord, but we trust, God, that you have our best in mind, that your purposes will always prevail, that in no matter in abundance or in famine, God, you are in control. And so, Lord, we entrust ourselves to you. God, help us to find a place of rest and peace and hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray.